It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It's The Wonky Show. There's a new report on attitudes towards women and girls in education. We'll have a look at that. There's a new long-term workforce plan for the NHS and the robots are still coming. It's all coming up. You know, there's there's a real um, body of resource here (laughs) Um, and they've just been ignored which is a massive shame Um, and it comes back to what I was saying earlier which is you know this idea of students need to be taught what consent is well actually and I say this all the time students have much better concept of consent than some senior leaders I've spoken to Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson and joining me as usual to get across the week's big news, three fabulous guests. Uh, in Derriford, Plymouth, Claire Taylor is Vice-Chancellor and Chief Exec at Plymouth Marjon University. Claire, your highlight of the week, please. Um, it's going to happen today because we have a staff community picnic on site and I'm just looking out the window and hoping it's not going to rain. Oh, cracking scotch eggs and everything. All, all sorts, yeah. Bring a plate, share staff and hopefully not get wet. Right I'm, right, I'm jumping on the train. Uh, in Bailrig in Lancaster, Paul Ashwin is Professor of Higher Education at Lancaster University. Paul, your highlight of the week, please. Um, I think it has to be the storm of hypocrisy over the stumping at the test match. Um, every side contradicting previous things they'd said and done and refusing to understand each other. Has now, been hold on. Is this about sport? Yeah, yeah, cricket, yeah. Oh, oh, right, okay. Sorry. Okay, anyway. <laughs> and in Bow Street in Keradigian, Sunday Blake is Associate Editor at Wonky. Sunday, your highlight of the week, please. It's a very, very like self-conceited one, but I got my 5K time down to 27 and a half minutes from 28 minutes, uh, where it's been stuck at 28 minutes for a long time. So I'm, I'm proud of myself for that. <laughs> Yes, we start this week with harassment. The House of Commons Women and Equalities Committee has published a report on attitudes towards women and girls in educational settings. Uh, What's in there, Paul? Yeah, so um, as you say, this is a report from the House of Commons Women and Equalities Committee looking at attitudes towards women and girls in educational settings. Um, It covers the whole of education, um, but there is a separate section on sexual misconduct in universities. Um, And really, it sets the scene of... Um, within the ONS crime survey, students being the occup- occupational group most likely to report sexual assault and the sense of female students feeling unsafe in a number of university spaces. There's a number of things it looks at. It looks at the question about whether we need a sector-wide survey to understand the prevalence um, of sexual harassment and sexual violence. And in fact, the OFS are going to pilot one in 2023. It discusses the OFS news pro- new proposed condition of registration around sexual harassment and um, the ending of NDAs, non-disclosure agreements in relation to um, issues of bullying, which includes sexual harassment. It looks at issues around raising awareness and bystander training and also kind of calls for the DFE to develop a national-wide sexual harassment and sexual violence campaign, particularly aimed at male students. Um, 
you know, there's lots of good stuff in it, but it also has a kind of slightly strange OFS version of higher education. So there's no mention of NUS and Students' Union and their role um, in this sphere and all the work they've done. And also quite a lot of the research that's been done on this is kind of absent from the report. So my colleague, Cal Carolyn Jackson with Vinita Sundrum has done a lot of work and as of others on lad culture and higher education and the ways in which we tend to focus on public displays of rowdiness that are fueled by alcohol rather than the everyday incidences across a number of university contexts. The other thing that for me that's really missing is the word power and how so much of this is dri driven by um, power and how when you try to address this one of the things you first come up against is that power doesn't like being challenged yes interesting stuff i mean claire th th one of the things i thought was kind of fascinating was sometimes um i mean government does this a lot where the dfe will say we want ofs to do something and it's obvious that the government has already had that conversation with ofs right because eight seconds later ofs says yeah okay um but this isn't you know this isn't government this is a backbench committee but nevertheless most of the things they're recommending are already in train yeah they are and and um you know, the first thing I'd say is that clearly, you know, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, any form of harassment should never be part of a student's higher education experience. Uh, and you're right, Paul, in, in terms of highlighting, you know, where, where are student unions in this as well? Because this is about whole university approaches, universities and student unions working hand in hand uh, to tackle all forms of harassment on campus. And it's interesting in, in that, you know, many of the recommendations, the OFS has already, you know, putting in train or starting to put in train um, in relation to their potential new condition of registration. But actually, you know, a lot of us are doing this stuff already. I mean, here at Plymouth Marjon, we've had compulsory training in place for three years now. Um, so as students enroll, they can't enroll unless they go through, um, admittedly a short, but a really important short online consent and behaviour course. Um, and this address is not just serious sexual violence, but broader and perhaps more common issues, you know, microaggressions, banter. Um, we also try to remember that, you know, we're looking at a broader age range. We may have students who are suffering from domestic abuse, you know, highlighting that. And this is very much about being part of a, a community that cares. So, you know, I'm, I can't believe we're the only university who's already looked at this and addressed this and responded uh, and, and understands that, you know, there are problems here that, that need to be dealt with. Um, so, yes, great that that it's being called out at that kind of high level in terms of the House of Commons. But let's, you know, let's join some things up and actually um, recognise that there's some really good intervention work going on already. Sunday, just on this campaign about boys, so mm -hmm. I, I can't remember what the wording is, but it says something like... Um, you know, that, 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 yeah, there has to be a big DFE thing about males when they arrive. Oh, I've got so much and to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> here we go. And, and I mean, but the point there is, I mean, it's a really, 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 really basic form of targeting, isn't it? Yeah. But actually, yeah. in the granularity of OFS's proposals, and we are due, I guess, a response to that, you know, any week now, mm. there's, there's a much more sophisticated proposal for providers in terms of targeting, you know, the people most likely to be victims or whatever. The thing, right, the thing with perpetrators and victims is, it's going to sound weird, it's going to take me a while to say, 90 seconds in podcast terms, which is a while, um, but the victims of sexual violence and perpetrators of sexual violence are 
basically impacted by the same system, okay? So sexual violence is a extreme end of a spectrum of attitudes that contribute to negative outcomes for men and women, right? And that is not to say it shouldn't be, extra, extra, shouldn't be addressed, but it is the end product of a system. So my concern here is that we're basically focusing on like the end product of a wider system. And there's a book about this by J.J. Bollard, which everyone should read, called Mask Off. Um, and it's basically that sort of patriarchal masculinity is like a double-edged sword. So the same thing that puts men at an advantage in society and demeans women and leads to sexual violence stems from the same elements that make, you know, men die earlier, give boys lower GCSE attainments, like more likely to face homelessness, enter the criminal justice system when they uh, leave school at a higher rate than women. And these are not, these are not, these issues are not coming it's not two different issues that are causing these outcomes for boys and girls. It's the same issue. So I've got concerns around a targeted campaign because what we should be doing is engaging boys in conversation in a way that leads to a reduction in sexual violence. But it has to be about wider attitudes around gender and masculinity. And there was a tiny little nod to this in the report, but only for primary schools and secondary schools. And yeah, do you see what I mean? And the recommendations for higher education only focus on sexual violence, which is the extreme end point of masculinity. And if we only talk about masculinity in a way that it negatively impacts women, like the DfE campaign is sort of alluding to, then we're going to get male undergrads turning around and saying, as men, we've got these glaringly obvious inequalities. Why are you targeting us? And the men who feel targeted and attacked, because it's a deficit-driven approach that focuses on masculinity, are going to feel disenfranchised franchised and fall in their fat in their thousands straight into the hands of people like Andrew Tate um so if we are looking for a way to engage boys it's got to be about a conversation not oppositionalizing um, and only focusing on the harm it does to women because well-developed rounded stable empathetic men are less likely to harm women and we can do that without demonizing them and an example that higher education will understand <laughs> is when we talk about curriculum transformation right we talk about developing skills in students versus imparting content if we develop skills in boys where they can listen to their peers understand and empathise with other people, then when women and girls speak about the harm that this behaviour does to them, the boys are more likely to understand that and become allies. And that those skills are transferable to a whole range of societal issues, not just sexual violence. Paul, I guess that, you know, th this is fascinating because it reminds me of the widening access debate, right? So, you know, lots of this stuff is, stuff is happening well before people kind of attend higher education, but there will still be an expectation that higher education kind of fixes what hasn't already been fixed. And, you know, if universities you know, go further than the way Claire's kind of talking. And let's say did workshops on, on gender and feminism and masculinity and so on. I can imagine all sorts of people walking out of that phone in the Telegraph and going, well, this is, this is woke nonsense. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's really difficult because, because it is a societal issue. It's not an issue created um, in this context by universities. It is something that's incredibly harmful, incredibly pernicious and needs to be addressed. So, so universities, I mean, the way that Claire's already outlined, need to do things. And there's kind of various things that are difficult about it. You know, is the OFS really the right body to be regulating this? It's, it seems a very strange thing from my perspective for them to do and really raises questions about what expertise they have to do this. Um, you know, that you know, I kind of understand and, and, and to some extent agree with what Sunday is saying about the problematic focus on men and boys and, and there's certainly a whole way in which kind of gender gets essentialized in these discussions which is incredibly unhelpful 
Um, however, you know, the, the other dangerous side is is that we get into a situation where basically women are told to change their behaviours because of, because of men being problematic. So so it's a really difficult set of issues to address. And, you know, as I said at the beginning, unless we include power, unless we, you know, because part of the reaction you're talking about where people um, say, this is woke nonsense, why do I have to do this at university? Not all of it, but some of that is a reaction to having power challenge. When people say, oh, it's just banter, oh, can't you take a joke? That's an exercise in power. And unless we kind of really take account of the way in which power reacts strongly when it's challenged, then actually we're going to end up in a bigger mess than we are now. I think I think that's that they're really great points, Paula. And I just want to come back on the OFS regulation proposals as well, because um, you're right. You know, is this the right place? There's a there's a real danger, isn't there, that um, by going down that kind of regulatory route, it, it it could become a very instrumental approach, and we don't get behind those much bigger issues. You know that that Sunday has fantastically outlined there. You know, understanding what's behind um, the the prevalence in in certain quarters, and really getting under the skin of that kind of whole systems approach that we need in terms of addressing broader attitudes and that broader societal, uh, you know, issue across schools, youth work, you know, throughout the whole education system so that you're quite right. When we when we get to universities, we're not trying to kind of put a sticking plaster on something that actually is, um, you know, is just embedded within the fabric of society. Well, you know, there, there, there's something notable about um, the House of Commons with, with the huge issues it faces in terms of sexual harassment and sexual violence, kind of telling education to get its house in order. There's, you know, I mean, I mean, cl- clearly this is a particular group of MPs, clearly what they're doing is right. But, you know, th- these issues are everywhere. The thing is, though, Claire, right, that, that, I mean, buried in the OFS proposals, I'm actually not convinced that many people have kind of noticed this because the way it was written up, buried in the OFS proposals is some stuff about understanding prevalence and understand and therefore targeting some approaches and it's not you know the reality is i think if, if universities if, if 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 a university did a look at its critical incidents over the past 10 years let's imagine that it found that elite sports clubs were a particular issue and let's imagine that it also found you know the rugby club or whatever and let's imagine that it also found that students that are doing remote field work that's also where, where they're kind of very vulnerable that does suggest like we do with access part and part participation or all sorts of other things an important need to target rather than just every give everyone that online module at the start but on the other hand you know if you target and you say oh, hi all sports clubs i just want to have a word with football and rugby because you're more likely to be a problem we'll get the reaction that paul talks about yeah it, it it's really hard isn't it i mean i would hope that um I mean, certainly Plymouth Marjon University, we're a relatively small university. We do have that sense of community. And I think we can have those conversations, quite targeted conversations, quite honestly on the ground. You know, we did our own um, survey a couple of years ago, and we're quite surprised at a relatively high rate, if I'm honest, of, of, of respondents who said they had experienced some form of sexual harassment. Um, you know, it's easy to think that in a smaller university that things are absolutely perfect, but this is reflecting what is happening outside in society. We're a microcosm of society and we cannot turn a blind eye. So, someday, obviously one of the kind of solutions here is actually about building the resilience of a student community to kind of address things. And, and bystander training is, a you know, an important feature of the report. It's also in the OFS proposals. But of course, bystander training isn't really something you can do through an online module 
the, the, you know, kind of, that's much harder. You probably need to have sit and have a conversation. And if you're going to do that with every student, that is a big ask, isn't it? Because in large universities, even in smaller universities. Uh, well, actually, it's not actually a big ask. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about one-to-one conversations, like, absolutely, that's, that's, that's a big ask. But if you read the report, and I was actually quite surprised that none of this was in the recommendations because I thought that this finding was quite significant. It was that... What both men and women that they'd spoken to were specifically asking for, like, peer-led conversations. Like, they, that's, that was, like, a request in the report from students, um, which is why I was really sort of surprised that, that that was in there. I think there is, I think there is definitely a, a role for sort of, like, not top-down information sort of imparting, but I think there is a role for, like, awareness. So, for example... Um, I was listening to uh, Women's Hour talking about this yesterday and a caller said, you know, you know, this rise in sexual harassment is just vexatious uh, accusations and all this sort of stuff. Um, And actually, if you look into sort of, you know, the myth of vexatious um, kind of accusations and false accusations, men, unfortunately, are are 230 times more likely to be raped themselves and falsely accused of rape. And I think, you know, there's a role for sort of information and stats like that that can help students contextualise, or boys particularly, contextualise their concerns around this, you know, and, and understand, you know, the context around it. But, you know, like Claire was saying, there's a huge capacity and willingness of students themselves to engage in in this sort of behavior so when you know when you look in the report and you hear people saying we've not got we you know we've not got the resources we haven't got the time we can't do this well I mean I I was a student union president and also at university for seven years and as a student and not one year went by without a student-led anti-sexual violence campaign you know there's there's a real um body of resource here (laughs) Um, and they've just been ignored which is a massive shame Um, and it comes back to what I was saying earlier which is you know this idea of students need to be taught what consent is well actually and I say this all the time students have much better concept of consent than some senior leaders I've spoken to and they should be leading this conversation. (laughs) Who does the teaching And, and but that's interesting Paul isn't it because actually you know one of the things I've reflected on is this is actually OFS getting into what should be taught. Now, I remember the Higher Education and Research Act, at least in theory, saying that universities are free to teach what they like. But in a way, you know, adding the new positive duty on free speech plus this, you know, we're starting to move to uh, something I said on the site a few weeks ago, a kind of, you know, a PSHE curriculum that's compulsory for higher education. And that's a new space. Yeah, and, and and there might be arguments for and against that, but but we need to have that debate, and we need to have that clear debate about is that the role of the OFS, and and let's see what the House of Lords committee and the review of the OFS come out with. But it kind of feels a strange space to get into, and I think you know you can kind of see some issues around the approach the OFS has taken. So you were talking about prevalence, but the moment you talk about prevalence, you're you're talking about these as events as if they come in self-labeled rather than what Sunday was talking about, that that actually that moment is is the outcome of of something much wider. And you also tend to really focus on individuals. And and this isn't an individual issue. This is about social structures and how people relate together. And if you're going to 
if you're going to address them, you need to open up an institutional conversation where people feel able to raise these instances and know what's going to happen with them, you know, in, in a way that evokes a discussion amongst the community about how we move forward rather than targets and disciplines individuals. Do you know what, on that point that Paul just raised, I think that's so important about what happens when people raise these complaints because no one... I haven't seen anyone develop a set of tools to adequately deal with what is termed in the report as low-level sexual violence or low-level incidents at all. There is only formal complaint or, you know, you don't put in a formal complaint. And actually... We we don't do that when people are moaning about their course. There's loads of stuff about informal stuff. Precisely, precisely. And actually, you know, there was a piece on the site about 18 months ago now um, that I still think of regularly where... um, you know, it was uh, Katie Tolbin was talking about how the how we need uh, to talk about the grey areas of sexual misconduct or the low the low level sexual misconduct that does need addressing that might need institutional intervention like restorative justice or something. But we don't have the we don't have the tools for that. All we have is a formal complaint, which actually a lot of victims will say, "Well, yeah, he did pinch my bum, but I, don't, I can't deal with a three month investigation into that." And we don't have the tools. And, you know, again, it comes back to this idea of conversations, people sat in a room and having conversations about the harm that potential behaviour and actual behaviour causes. Um, And I would I would love to see an institution like courageously tackle this and deal with this and come up with, with tools to to approach this, because at the moment, it you know, I think it's actually off putting for students to. To complain to, to about go, these to, things, yeah. To do the formal thing, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Claire, the other thing someone was saying to me the other day is, I mean, you're in a you're in a city where there's three three universities. That's right, because Plymouth Arts is a university now, right? Yeah, three universities and lots and lots of international PGT students who, with all the will in the world, on month ten are probably not going to put a complaint in that would take four months to investigate. So, not only for international PGTs, if you've got to speed stuff up, there's lots of anecdotal evidence that lots of students are in the same nightclub from a different university. You know, they're kind of so particularly students from, you know, some of the emergent international markets. How, you know, is, is there space for more citywide collaboration on some of this stuff? Is that, does that feel possible or, or does it all have to be through kind of formal structures as Sunday talks about? Yeah, no, I think there is. I mean, you know, there are certain things that we try to collaborate on together, you know, and, and, and all cities with multiple universities will be the same. I and mean, student accommodation is is a, is a key one. Um, so, you know, we'll have student accommodation blocks with students potentially from, you know, different universities there. There, you know, and there is a space there for that conversation that Sunday's been talking about uh, in terms of, you know, really nailing what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And that would have to be a cross-university um, conversation. I guess it, it comes down as well to this idea of you know where, where are people belonging and where are those conversations going to be most worthwhile and have most impact so it might be within your accommodation block it might be within your sports team um, it might be if you are a you know mature student who's commuting in and and perhaps it's within a forum where it's more around um, domestic abuse um, I think we do need to be creative and courageous as Sunday says around some of those things and I love the idea of a, a of a conversation supporting toolkit um, you know something very practical I don't think it needs to be hugely resourcing intensive because I think um, there is a willingness and there are huge skills as Sunday said out there amongst our student population uh, to actually lead on some of these conversations and establish you know what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. Now Sunday just before we move on um, obviously because of the kind of name of the committee this focused on 
um, women and girls sexual violence. Although one of the critiques of the OFS proposals is they're also always framed around um, women and girls and, and, and sexual harassment and sexual misconduct. But, you know, I mean, when Paul talked earlier about microaggressions, on the one hand, there will be an expectation to train students around, you know, racial harassment too. That's more controversial in the culture wars. But there's a new report out, isn't there, from UUK on this? Yeah, um, this is, it's actually a little bit um, concerning. So uh, UK, uh, just to give you a bit of background, conducted some research with IFF uh, on ethnic minority students and their experience of racial harassment on campuses. Um, And basically the survey built on a 2009 survey by the Equality and Human Rights Commission. And UK found that 24% of students have experienced, um, sorry, of um, ethnic minority students have experienced racial harassment on campus. The reason this is worrying is it's the exact same percentage as 2019, um, which sort of makes you question where the progress is. Um, In Scotland, it actually rose to 25%. And if we break down students into demographics, um, it was 32% for postgraduates and 45% for black students, um, up from 29% in uh, 2019. and of these 42% of black students who experience racial harassment, um, only, uh, I think only, for, sorry, cut that, stupid. Of this 24% of students who experienced racial harassment, 42% uh, reported it to the university. Um, and this is actually the encouraging part of the report because that has gone up from 33%, which could mean that students are gaining trust in their university complaints procedure. Um, but... of those who did report said that they're not confident that the issue is going to be addressed adequately. Well, lots more uh, in that UUK report. We put a link on the uh, podcast page. Uh, For now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hello, I'm Andy Todd. And this week on Wonky, I've been blogging about students with parental responsibilities. I've been talking about how important it is that this previously invisible cohort within higher education is supported and celebrated and we have every opportunity to do that with the advent of the new UCAS question which asks students to identify whether they have parenting responsibilities. So this September is the first time that we'll have hard data on who our student parents are. I've also given some tips in there about what providers might think about doing between now and September to prepare themselves to be able to support in a deliberate way this mighty and resilient cohort. Now, the NHS celebrated its 75th anniversary this week, and we've also got a new long-term workforce plan, Claire. Yeah, so it's a happy birthday, NHS, and um, I guess the the 15-year long-term workforce plan that's been announced by the government is is their way of giving them a birthday present, I think, and perhaps some hope for the future. So there's been lots of looking back, celebrating the incredible work of the NHS, but there's also been lots of commentary around the fact that, you know, if we carry on as we are, we are just not going to have a service that's fit for purpose. So in terms of, um, you know, relevance for higher education, um, big increases in places for doctors, nurses and midwives are promised. Um, It's not an immediate fit. These are phased over several years. Um, There's a major focus on apprenticeships, um, ideas around reducing the length of medical degrees uh, and the possibility of fast tracking student nurses into the workforce um, as soon as they um, qualify and graduate. Um, Now, clearly, NHS England will be working with universities um, uh, across all of these issues, but particularly, I think there are issues around addressing um, 
geographical inequalities in terms of provision uh, and also of course working with universities and providers around course expansion and where that's targeted you know where is it going to make the most impact but I think there were three kind of key challenges that remain um, which I I think is worth us kind of Uh, reflecting on. There are still huge challenges for student nurses, medics, anyone going into uh, an NHS related uh, profession around student finance, you know, cost of living, um, you know, funding your way through these courses, um, placement costs, transport costs, all those sorts of things. Um, We know there are still concerns around retention um, within the NHS workforce. Uh, and, you know, that's something as providers, you know, we need to be thinking about as well. And there's a big issue around pressure on placements. You know, we, we, you can't, you can't just theoretically train a medic. They have to be out there actually, you know, doing stuff in the real world. Um, so I think there's a whole discussion for us to have around, um, parallel investment in terms of simulation spaces, digital technology, digital solutions. But yeah, it's exciting. Um, it's a tremendous opportunity, and certainly for universities like ours here in Plymouth that are, you know, already doing a lot in the healthcare space. Really looking forward to see how these plans unfold. Paul, for all the years I've been involved in, in, in you know, kind of universities and student unions, now and again I find myself on a ward. Right. And one of the first things I did when I was a student officer back in, in 1998, 1999, was I was at one of the campuses of UWE with a group of nursing students in Swindon. And they were describing the lie of supernumerary status. And, you know, I'm not sure that problem's gone away. And then, as Claire says, you know, the potential here is that without proper investment, it gets significantly worse. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I think, you know, it, it, it's hard to separate th- this from the kind of huge challenges that the NHS faces you know it's i kind of you know for for me all i have in my head is is the potential you know huge health problems we're going to have with the current kind of 8am gp lottery to get an appointment and all these people who are not being seen with probably early signs of wider health problems and 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 it just feels to me like you've got a system under such tremendous stress to have a 15 year plan seems wildly optimistic um, you know, based on where we are at the moment. And I, you know, I was really struck by by that quote from Sir Michael Marmot, who said, you know, he didn't know the thinking of ministers. He didn't know whether they were deliberately undermining the NS, NHS. But if you had a hi- hypothesis they were, then all the data is consistent with that. And so I find it very difficult to kind of separate this from the kind of crisis we have in the NHS with doctors and nurse, nurses and all kinds of professions working their hardest but in a system that that just feels like it's failing Sunday you'll understand why the first thing I searched for control f was have they fixed that kind of you know at the end of a of a, of a medical degree the bursary is you know the the, the the strategy student finance system from DFE disappears and you're left with nothing and you know I, I mean you know as Claire says the, the idea that they've not addressed student finance everything from placement costs to you know whether there's enough to live on because this it's not as if this group of students can be busy working in a nightclub for 20 hours a week is it no and do you know what so it's really interesting around like sort of volume of work and sort of uh placements and i mean i always use the uh, example of midwives which is that they have to deliver 40 babies before they graduate and i don't know if you've ever witnessed a birth i haven't but it looks like it's yeah i'm sure i'm sure um <laughs> two i believe um but yeah you know it is an intense in i mean th- these are I-, I was talking at a uh on a panel a couple of 
uh, weeks ago about you know the intensity of the type of work that students are doing because I think when we're talking about volume of work we need to talk about type of work that they're doing as well um I think another key challenge that Claire raised um importantly is is retention Um, and one of the really interesting conversations I was having with some deans of medical schools a couple of weeks ago was that um, the syllabus or the syllabi of um, medical degrees is so tightly restrained right because you've got not you know you've got your placement and you've got your learning time and their students are assessed under a knowledge test um, and it's very sort of content oriented Um, And the deans were saying that one of the things that they are, because because of the strain on the NHS, one of the things that they really, really want to do is, like, as part of the curriculum, teach students about the overwhelming number of patients they are trying to see when they go into the workplace. Um, And the applied knowledge test, which is mandated by the GMC and, you know, is sort of very tightly restrained, um, that doesn't fit the paradigm that they're wanting to move towards. So they're saying that you know this kind of like crisis of retention is coming is coming in because we can't adequately prepare students for the volume of patients and the the intense stress that they're going to be under in the workplace because they're sort of they're they're restrained under an exam structure and an assessment structure where it's sort of didactic you know esoteric forms of knowledge um you know where are they gaining the skills to deal with the stress of high workload and and where where can deans or module leaders find time in the curriculum to put that in we 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 can't so yes i completely agree that you know post graduation we've got all these sort of issues that need ironing out but if you take a step back and you come back into sort of the university environment and look at what they're learning they're not necessarily learning the skills that will retain them within the yes. system but Claire, this is really interesting, isn't it? So, so move off nurses and and, and medics for for a second. I ended up in in an argument with someone on Twitter this week, as ever, um, about Labour's proposal on um, graduate led childcare nurseries, and and really the argument was the age old argument about credentialism and whether childcare is really a higher education thing. And you know, I was talking about Norland and how Norland would say the Norland nannies have kind of raised the 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 depth of knowledge and the understanding of childcare professionals and wouldn't it be fantastic if everyone involved in childcare was paid that much and knew that much um, so on the on the one hand you know all the t- again all the time I've been involved there's been lots of debates about it's brilliant on the one hand that nursing students have a much deeper understanding of lots of things that then enables them to do lots of things but on the other hand there are other people who will say I just want them to learn skills um, you know this is unnecessary this is credentialism get them in the ward you know put them on an apprenticeship they don't need all of this I think I think there's a I, th- I think this is about us understanding more um, deeply and more completely the the range of careers that are, that are available throughout our kind of healthcare medical professions I mean your, your example of um, childcare's Childcare is a, a good one. I mean, we we do now have a range of routes in through the NHS. You know, we've got our nursing associates, we've got the apprenticeship scheme. Interestingly, potentially apprenticeships for for dots as well. Um, but I'm not sure that the, the broader public or or even young people who are thinking about a career um, across healthcare and medical professions actually understand what the different pathways are and what they mean and how you could perhaps you know go in um, at an associate level you know get your feet under the table with some quite practical work and then potentially progress through uh, perhaps into, into into higher level roles. So I think there's definitely some work to do there around that kind of recruitment piece and signposting a range of careers and and I think as well just 
you know, going back to that kind of retention piece, um, I know John Cater has been, um, you know, talking about um, you know, perhaps incentivising, um, you know, behaviour through writing off tuition fees. Perhaps that's something for us to think about. But there is something about that whole package, isn't there, in terms of, you know, what's what's the work going to be like, as Sunday says, um, and how do we support people to, um, you know, to with, with that resilience piece to not to not burn out? You know, could we think again around um, sabbaticals for people who are working within our healthcare professions? I'd say the same for education as well, because we're seeing exactly the same challenges in schools. But I think there is a, a huge piece of work around understanding, you know, what types of roles do we need where? How do we support people through those career paths? And are we communicating that clearly to potential NHS workers and, and the broader public? Paul, just before we uh, finish on this, just linking item one and two, um, that more and more higher education has got a kind of work-based component to it, often optional, but certainly in these cases, compulsory. The university's ability to control or investigate or set standards in you know, what happens in partners around things like harassment or sexual misconduct, for example, or the kind of general environment, is significantly more restricted than it would be if students were just doing history on campus, isn't it? Yeah, obviously, and, and that kind of partnership working is really valuable, but it kind of sets sets limits on what, what you can do. And, and I think what's really important um, from my perspective is, is that when universities are giving students access to working environments that there, there needs to be a reality to that and, and it needs to actually be focused on what the work actually involves rather than sometimes it can almost be this this mythic version of work that actually isn't particularly helpful to students so 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 in a way those limits are important because you know the universities don't create that workplace and therefore they have to negotiate and work with employers to find ways of giving students access that also um, helps to support students in a way that's inclusive. Yes, tr tricky stuff. Now, lots more on the site about this. Um, in a second, if you hear an advert, we're paying the bills. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, we were saddened to learn this week of the death of Bob Kerslake. The UPP Foundation's Richard Brabner leads the tribute. I've been asked to say a few words uh, by the team at Wonky about Lord Bob Kerslake, who sadly died on Saturday. Um, and of course, all of our thoughts and condolences are with Bob's family and friends. Now, Bob obviously had a distinguished career in local and national government, which he is best known for. But in terms of his contribution to higher education, he was, of course, chair of Sheffield Hallam University, who, uh, a university which he held very closely to his heart. 
and chair of the UPP Foundation Civic University uh, Commission. Bob, Bob was a superb chair of that commission. His dedication to the place agenda has really led to a renaissance of the civic university movement. And everyone who worked on that project found Bob to be an absolute pleasure to work with. And from speaking from as, as the director of the UPP Foundation, the impact on at my organisation um, was transformative. And we at the UPP Foundation will be forever thankful for Bob's brilliant leadership of that commission. Critical to the success of the commission was Bob's passion and insights. He cared deeply about place and thought much about the role of universities in their cities and towns and regions. Um, he fervently believed that policy and incentives were pointing in the wrong direction, but also knew that as autonomous institutions, which were better off than much of the public sector at the time, universities had more room for manoeuvre themselves to own this issue, rather than rely on government intervention or support. To my mind, his real, true, his brilliant ability, uh, and one that's all too rare in public policy or the higher education sector more generally, was the tone of the challenge to universities. He got the balance absolutely spot on. Now, universities could do more. After all, there wouldn't have been a commission if everything was working perfectly. But he articulated this in a way which brought the sector with him to enable change to happen. I've got vivid memories of drafts of the report, of speeches being rewritten by Bob with certain sections toned down where we'd been too critical and other sections given a bit more of a punch where we had been overly defensive of the sector. Now, this took some time, but it was all worth it. With around 70 universities developing civic university agreements, the creation of the civic university network, cross-party support for the Commission's final report, and even international interest in the civic university agenda, I think it's fair to say that the Commission, chaired by Bob, made a real difference. Now, as a small and new foundation at the time and setting up the Civic University Commission, we could not have dreamed of this impact. It was down to Bob who made the real difference, and he changed higher education from the better. And on a personal date, it was, it was a real privilege to have worked with Bob, a lovely, lovely and decent man who we're all going to miss greatly. Now, finally this week, we've been continuing the conversation on generative AI. Uh, and interestingly, the Russell Group has some principles out Sunday. Uh, so we've got a piece from Joshua Thorpe, good piece. Um, and that is wondering uh, whether among the sort of heat of, uh, you know, concerns around assessment, there's actually a potential for a crisis of knowledge among students. Uh, your piece uh, dives into the heart of the crisis and you make some connections about, you know, the sort of ongoing drama. <laughs> Around market, uh, around the market and assessment boycott, um, as well as uh, academic integrity, um, and uh, like you said, the Russell Group have set out some principles for the use of generative AI in education, um, and these uh, include support for students and staff to become AI literate, and the adaptation of teaching and assessment to incorporate <laughs> the ethical use of such technology while ensuring academic integrity is upheld. Um, I think it's also worth noting here that uh, student unions are doing the absolute Lord's work on this um, and they are popping up all over the place at the minute with uh, statements and sort of pressure uh, for their institutions to be taking this seriously. I know, Jim, you've been sort of retweeting lots of lots of these statements as well. Now, now, now Paul, 
Um, I don't mean to be mean about, um, you know, our glorious elite, right? But my <laughs> eyes drifted to 4.1 in the Russell Group's document that says, all 24 universities have reviewed their academic conduct policies. These make it clear to students and staff where the use of generative AI is inappropriate. Now, I have spoken to a lot of student union officers over the past few months about this, and I'm not sure I've spoken to one that thinks the policy is clear about where you can use, I don't know, Grammarly or... Do you know what I mean? I mean, obviously, you can't copy and paste from ChatGPT. I think only the daftish students are doing that and getting caught. But beyond that, I'm not sure it's clear to anyone, let alone, you know, in policies. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and it's a kind of strange statement of the obvious from the Russell Group. You know, you kind of, it's kind of a particular sense of entitlement that, that feels that they need to share their, their five fairly obvious principles with the world. I'm not, I'm not really sure where it takes us. I mean, on, on the wider issues, I, I, I'm a kind of optimist about AI, really. I kind of feel like, you know, yes, it's the death of lazy assessment. You know, you can no longer churn out the same thing. But actually thinking, you know, it raises really interesting questions about what does it mean to assess students? What what counts as the meeting of a learning outcome? And what kind of performance do we expect from students to meet that learning outcome? And do we use the same old performances of essays or solving problems? And actually, there are a wider range of performances we might use that might incorporate AI into assessments. So so I think AI raises really interesting questions. You know, on the kind of downside, I've, I've kind of been slightly amused about how much people, you know, when you've got Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg saying, you know, AI could destroy the world. Well, of course they'd say that. They've got massive investments <laughs> in it. You know, let's not take them too seriously. And let's kind yeah. of, you know, there will be moments where you know, bad things happen with AI and then we'll come to terms with it and we'll work out how it can be a real, really important way of supporting our work and supporting students' work. I kind of, kind of feel the, the panic is, is kind of a bit much, really. Thing is, though, Claire, right, here's my theory on this, yeah. Most marking, particularly where you've got a lot of students in some departments, right, basically involves a student making a thing that's a digital asset. They then upload it and someone marks it later. If we can no longer work out whether the thing they've submitted was their work, that wrecks that model, doesn't it? From my point of view, we've we've got to move this debate on from from this kind of assessment question. I think you know the horse has bolted on this one, and we're not. This isn't going to be fixed with a, a list of principles from from the Russell Group, um, lovely though they might be. You know, this isn't just about assessment. This is about rethinking, teaching, learning, research approaches. Uh, this is opening up big questions around the nature of knowledge as a commodity, the university role uh, in terms of, you know, creating knowledge, uh, critiquing knowledge, um, the, the uh, democratisation of knowledge via the internet. And I think, you know, we're possibly looking at the end of um, assessment-focused learning. And there's been some great articles on Wonky around, you know, what does this actually mean? Uh, and perhaps we might be able to be freed up to actually focus more on the educational journey. Um, and yes, we will need to work out, you know, how do we represent that educational journey? And how do people communicate the the learning gain, I guess, that has been that has uh, that has come out of that. But I really hope that this will help us move further away from what, in my view, has become um, quite an overly instrumental approach to study. You know, quite myopically focused on outcomes. You know, essays, grades. You know, your certificate, um, and look again at that kind of um, intrinsic value of of what education should be about and what that educational journey should be about. 
Thing is, Sunday, right? I mean, you know, it's really easy, I think, to agree with Claire and to be optimistic and to be, you know, kind of visionary. But on the other hand, there's no money. Everyone's busy. There's a massive industrial strife. <laughs> Tons of new students. You know, if you work in a department where, you know, someone over-recruits during clearing to make the numbers on the Excel sheet add up, this all sounds a bit fanciful, doesn't it? Okay, so, th- right, this reminds me a little bit of... Um, do you remember the Duke, well, the Duke of Edinburgh's award when... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. When yeah. GPS- I've still got mine, yeah. Have you? Right. GPS and SatNav came out and they were like, right, guys, this is an additional safety tool. We still need to test your navigation skills. And and literally like every student just got Google Maps up on their phone when they did DV and they were like, why are all the students getting here so quickly this year? And the thing is, I feel like that is a prime example of how like you like these these tools are here and students are going to use them to get to the get to the end goal which is which is how they see assessment right they see the assessment as i need to get the end goal of this grade what we need to do is reframe assessment as part of the learning journey and as valuable part of the learning journey right so we need you know i mean i have all these conversations and sort of like leave them buzzing and feeling you know sort of visionary and whatever but like the i like looking at things like interdisciplinary working there's a fantastic module at Leeds where they they get engineers to work with sociologists and they look at things like greenwashing in f1 racing and stuff like that brilliant things students are interdisciplinary that anyway they're going to go into an interdisciplinary world it's very very difficult to use chat gbt to pass a group project (laughs) assignment but students those those types of assignments and i I understand there are some concerns said about group work where students feel like you know the distribution of academic labor might not sit equally among the the, the team and stuff like that but overall students feel really positive about these types of assessments where group work where it's collaborative learning where it's cross-modular um and the other thing just to you know get on get on my belonging work is that it really enhances feelings of belonging which we know also you know contribute to academic um better academic outcomes so my my advice is do not make the mistake that DFE made <laughs> with GPS, but actually actually think, okay, do you know what? Students are going to be get, using this to get to the end goal faster. Let's reframe what the end goal is. The end goal is not passing the assessment. The end goal is gaining the skills of what they need to go into the workplace to work, you know, to fill gaps in the, in the labour market um, and, and to be, you know, fulfilled citizens of the world right yeah. and, and paul just before we come off this um on the day we're recording this labor is launching its education mission and one of the big components is all receipts really concerned that students can't kind of speak out loud talk and so on a really important kind of thing that you know if, if labor wins the election that will feed through at some point you know you know how this will go the civil servants in dfe will be told well, what's going on in he around oracy and oral assessment feels hard to do but it's the it, there's a role for it somewhere isn't there yeah, exactly. And I, and I think Sunday's right. You know, this is a real opportunity to rethink assessment, re- rethink about what it means when we try and assess the kind of things students produce and to open up a conversations with students about that. And it also raises kind of really interesting questions around originality. You know, what is originality? And, you know, and, and to me, I think we kind of individualize these things we individualize originality and they're not they're always collective and so the question is how can we incorporate these tools into collective practices that include the kind of products that students produce and 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 the kind of academic things that 
we produce through our research. So, so to me, they're fascinating questions, and clearly there'll be a few, few bumps along the road. But, I, but I don't, I don't see it leading to a crisis. So that's about it for this week. Remember, to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today, you'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So thanks very much to Claire, Paul, Sunday, our news editor Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. The whole team will be here next week to review the year. Until then, stay wonky. Stay wonky.